CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode of Gen Z is sponsored by Chainalysis. Gen Z is the generation of the new internet. In Gen Z, the C stands for crypto, but it also stands for creators, the connected consumer and collectibles, both digital and physical with on-chain provenance. It stands for culture and characters, the ones we play in games and the companion ones that AI is building alongside us. It stands for community and digital citizenship and the new set of transparent and trustless tools being built to govern them. These are the people who were raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at privacy, and how they look at the hybrid, digital, and physical spaces being built all around us. And finally, how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We focus on how brands, large and small, are building for these audiences. Welcome to Gen Z. Avery, it has been a crazy, crazy week. There's been so much happening. This whole week feels like it was about a year of information crammed into about seven days. So first, I just want to get your take on all of this open AI drama. It seems to have played out so publicly. I'm just not used to seeing that at a corporate level happening in real time on the internet in that manner. What were your thoughts about what happened? You know, this morning when my husband was like, Sam's back at OpenAI, I was like, you're joking. No, that can't be. But I've said that maybe every day for the last five, six days. The OpenAI drama, they need to make a documentary of it, a movie, a Netflix series, a Tubi special, whatever it is. (laughs) Because the world needs to speculate on exactly what happened and how that situation unfolded. It's stranger than fiction, for sure. But I guess all's well that ends well and Sam's back at the helm. I feel like Ben Mesrek is like writing feverishly right now to finish his next novel. Must be. <laughs> I also think it's interesting that like we still have no idea what the thing was that sparked the initial challenge a week and a half ago. You know, we don't know what they thought Sam was doing and not communicating to the board. So that still has not come out, which I think is also pretty fascinating. It leaves a lot of questions unanswered as he now regains power. Exactly. There will be more to come. We will be talking about this on future Gen Cs. I just know it. Sam, what are your thoughts on another leading figure in this spotlight this week from Binance, sort of CZ's fall from glory, though apparently he is offering his services as a startup advisor? (laughs) Yes, he was. I do want to give a shout out to both of our friends, Eric Golden, who put up the poll of who would you rather have as your startup founder, CZ or Jason Calacanis. And overwhelmingly, 90% of you thought that CZ would be a better mentor for your startup. I've been thinking about this a lot. 
you know, last November we had the fall of FTX and Sam Bankman Freed. A couple of months before that, we had, you know, things like Three Arrows Capital and some other kind of things that felt maybe less than up to snuff happen in the crypto industry. Binance was sort of the one that kind of rose above, but clearly as this case has unfolded over the last few weeks, it's been clear that they were doing some things, especially around these, uh, you know, regulations around anti-money laundering that they were, were not up to snuff. And there is a part of me, and I want to get your take on this, but there's a part of me that thinks we need to have a shakeout a little bit of a lot of these kind of early, very, very successful crypto entrepreneurs in order to make way for what the future of the crypto and blockchain industry can be. And I think I would just rather see not that someone was able to make $200 billion by being early and creating an exchange, but that people who are succeeding in this world are the ones who are actually looking at it as foundational technologies and driving our industry towards something that feels more equitable across the entire globe. Sam, I love that you continue to be such a purist around all things crypto. And I love that for you and for us, because you really do see all the pros and all the benefits of what this utopia can potentially be like fueled by crypto and and all the good sides of it. You and I both know, though, that there are people who do not share that same viewpoint. And I think we've seen quite a few shakeouts, whether it's with FTX or now with Binance or a number of these different projects, things that sounded too good to be true. Like my parents always tell me if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And it is unfortunate to see. But I think amidst all this happening with Thanksgiving week and AI stuff, I barely even saw it on like major news coverage. I think maybe just people have fatigue of hearing another one of these stories since we've seen this movie before. I think it didn't get as much sort of limelight as I kind of thought it would. But let's see how that plays out. I continue to be a huge believer in digital currency and the future of money. And I think that the shakeouts, yeah, there's an argument that it's a good thing. But from my perspective, these headlines continuing to break does continue to undermine enterprise interest and also consumer interest because they just feel like I can't trust anyone in this space. I'm slightly biased, but I think that Coinbase actually stands to be a big winner in all of this just because of the lobbying that they've been doing in Washington, the transparency that they've had with both shareholders and their company and sort of the news and Brian's position on a number of different things. I think they can be really the white knight in this situation where there are very few white knights. I agree. I do want to make sure we sort of represent the distinction, which is that the stuff that Binance has admitted wrongdoing and did pay a $4 billion fine for was nothing in the same category as what FTX and Sam Beckman fried was doing. Define the same category. Financial wrongdoings is just a broad category. There's financial wrongdoing and in financial institutions all around the world every day. I think the difference to me is like customer funds were not impacted. Like, right. You know, it wasn't like thousands or hundreds of thousands of people suddenly lost their life savings, which is what happened in FTX. This was more like yeah. they probably weren't being as on the up and up as they should have been regarding things like who was depositing and who was converting. And that's serious stuff for sure. Don't get me wrong. Yes. But it, to me, it's just not on the level. I think that is a good distinction. Yes. It is a good distinction. It's not as bad as some of the things that we've seen break, at least what we know now. Correct. I think we need the new layer of financial opportunity and inclusion. We need a new layer of blockchain is just a technology that happens in the background that you don't have to care that much about, but it actually creates a better opportunity and just try to move us a little bit forward. And I think by doing that, it does help the industry, but it's going to take some time. And you're 100% right. These headlines don't help anybody, but I'd rather have them all in the last couple of months than have them string out for years and years. Awesome. You're clean slate vibes, which I love too. (laughs) 
<laughs> for sure. Final story I want to put in front of you is I was paying attention to ComplexCon this past weekend, and we had the drop of Artifacts new sneakers with Nike that, yes, claps to them. And, you know, these were the first ones I think that Artifact put out that you didn't need to have an NFT in order to buy, so anyone could buy them. They were very futuristic looking, and all of them come actually with a digital twin and 3D models. And even I think they just launched I think, yesterday a world in Fortnite around them. So I think, again, Nike just continue to deliver on this idea of digital collectibles, digital assets, gaming in the future. And Ron and Nick and their whole team over at Nike, I think are just still doing a great job on bringing kind of consumer tech thinking and consumer brand thinking into futuristic spaces. Any final thoughts before we get to our guest? Nike continues to kill it. And I think Nike continues to stay the course with their strategy of engaging their fans in a new way. Um, shoes look great too. I've seen a bunch of people you know, sharing and posting and I think the aesthetic is super impressive. So continued kudos to Nike. All right, Avery, after the break, we are going to come back with Chris Duffy. Chris has had an amazing career. He's been at like incredible creative agencies. He now really is part of the strategic development and emerging solutions team at Adobe. I know you know him pretty well. He's a very smart guy who's a big thinker in terms of AI, metaverse, Web3. Super excited to hear what he says. So after the break, we will come back with Chris. Chainalysis is the premier blockchain data platform. Crypto businesses, financial institutions, and government agencies utilize Chainalysis data and services to answer their biggest questions about the blockchain. As regulators and policymakers work together to pass legislation that provides clarity for crypto businesses and protects consumers, they have the chance to do so with unparalleled data and research into the crypto ecosystem. Demystify cryptocurrency and gain greater visibility and insight by visiting Chainalysis.com slash Gen C. All right, welcome back. We are here with Chris Duffy. Chris, you are Strategic Development Emerging Solutions at Adobe. So first of all, thank you so much for spending this time right before Thanksgiving with us. Where are we finding you today? Yeah, thanks for having me here in beautiful Miami, but still a New Yorker at heart. We all have a little New York in us. Yes, we do. All right, I want to dive in. Chris, you had such like a wild career. It feels like I was looking at your, your CV and you were at like every hot ad agency that's ever been. I would love to sort of know your general career arc, what got you to Adobe, but really kind of your ethos of why kind of the creative lifestyle was one that you chose coming out of college. Thanks for that. Yeah, it was a wonderful journey. I, I did, uh, you know, have the luxury of working at some of the great shops. Never Vayner, though. Not yet. Yeah. Still time. <laughs> did have the opportunity to pitch against Vayner a few years ago. And I think it was the only time that there was not just a sole winner. So we both won. So I have to say that that was my Vayner pitch scenario. Yeah, it's been a wonderful journey for me. I spent about 20 years on the agency side. And in many ways, my career mirrored the evolution of the creative industry. So when I first got in, it was very marketing design focused, kind of the traditional big brand creation, the storytelling, the campaign development. It then evolved into more of a product design focus. And that was kind of the byproduct of the mobile evolution revolution. And we did a lot of apps and um, that then soon 
really evolved into digital experience design. And so it's been a wonderful journey across all of those different aspects of creativity. And here at Adobe, really focused on that uh, enablement, empowerment of all of those different types of creativity as well. And Chris, I love that story about both of us winning the pitch. Amazing. We'll have to talk offline about what lucky client got to work with both groups. I have seen and talked with you a lot about the sort of next evolution of creativity and how AI is sort of fueling that. AI has been the topic du jour in 2023, and Adobe's really been at the forefront of this, and you've been part of that forefront as well. Can you talk a little bit about that, a little bit about how Adobe is thinking about incorporating generative AI and the tools that you build and you know the things that you bring to brands and creators? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. It really has been quite an exciting 12 to 14 months uh, here at Adobe, and I would say equally across the industry. With the caveat that, you know, as much as we're talking currently about AI, what's I think different about this moment that we're encountering is it's a convergence of three or four major technological transformations. And so we've got AI. And when we talk about AI currently, we're really talking about Gen AI. The second big transformative technology is the metaverse or immersive. And, you know, Sam and Avery, you've both been heavily involved in that. And then Web3 capabilities and principles that I think are really kind of helping reimagine both of those previous two technologies. The fourth, which you know, I don't think we've talked enough about its impact that it's going to have is quantum computing. And so I think we've got this convergence of three or four transformational technologies happening in parallel, but also individually. This time last year was all metaverse and, you know, now the tide has somewhat shifted towards AI, but they're all going on an equal parallel path. So AI at Adobe has been central to what we've been doing for you know the past 15, 17 years or so in terms of software capabilities. The early days in terms of the creative industry were really heavily focused on automation of specific tasks or functions and then predictive capabilities. And then with the kind of breakthrough inventions of some of the newer technologies, such as language transformers, which kind of really helped propagate large language models, the CANs and the GANs, generative adversarial networks, really kind of all came together for this new influx of creativity powered by Gen AI. And so just to put it in tangible terms, we launched our generative AI product, service, and capabilities earlier this year. It's now the fastest growing product in the history of Adobe, which says a lot. And Within four months, we generated close to 4 billion outputs, just to underscore how profound that is having an impact on our industry. So really exciting times to be really at the core of software development and engineering, but also to help embolden the creative community with those capabilities. I want to give a first just like a hat tip to Adobe, because I don't think people recognize, I remember being in the creative industries for all of us have been in for a really long time. And even just the idea that back in the day you could kick up Photoshop. And if you wanted to emboss something, if you wanted to change the color, if you wanted to transform it, all of this were tools that suddenly were giving people the ability to be more creative than maybe their skill set allowed at the time. 
And so I think you don't get where we are today with the Dali's and mid journeys of the world without sort of the work that Adobe did to kind of pioneer creative industries as the creativity should be a commodity and your brain should be the most sort of wondrous part of the whole thing. So I think that's been really a credit due to Adobe for a lot of this work. I was thinking the other day because I saw this TikTok of a creator who was really sick of her friends asking when she was going to get a boyfriend. And so she took photos of herself all over New York and then she used the Photoshop generative tools to fill in you know, she put her hand out and then she would say, fill my hand with another person's. And then she would, you know, posted all these photos as if she had a boyfriend around town. And I was just like, these tools allow people to really tell whatever stories they want to tell in a much more creative and imaginative way. And the fact that she was also doing it through the lens of the Photoshop generative AI tool was pretty fascinating to me. I would love to know kind of what are you seeing that's just like interesting use cases? What are the things that you get excited about how people are utilizing these tools? Like what's the stuff that really inspires you to the fact that Adobe has created an opportunity for people to be even more creative? Yeah, you sparked a number of memories. Off camera, we were talking about, you know, you went to school in Wisconsin and I grew up there and, you know, I would spend uh, those cold winter days, nights, uh, quite often just at the computer, you know, with Photoshop. And uh, in many ways, that was a counterbalance to some of the feedback I would get in traditional design school, where I would commonly get this comment or feedback, my art or design had a sense of humor to it. And it wasn't intended to be humorous. It was just I didn't have that fidelity in the touch of the design. But when I was introduced to computer graphics, Photoshop, it really kind of unlocked the capability of what I had in my head and the ability to create that. And in many ways, uh, Gen AI, Firefly, our new offering, is really an extension of that. And the foundational belief is anyone, anywhere, at any time should be able to create if you went to art school, design school, if you're just a professional communicator, or if you have a birthday flyer you'd like to create. And that's really, I think, the core of the promise of Gen AI. At Adobe, you know, we tend to think of Gen AI in terms of four or five horizons. The first being generative images, kind of core to you know, what Adobe is known for. Second is generative video. Third is generative 3D, which is going to be profound. And then the fourth is kind of generative code and generative text. And so when you start to see the expansiveness of Gen AI just on the content creation side, it's quite profound. But then when you zoom out even further and you see the impact it's going to have on the entirety of the industry, this is where I think people are really starting to lean in and seeing it not only as a technology, but as a true platform. Just to paint that picture, and that's kind of what I'm very heavily focused on is Gen Studio. And it's focused on this end-to-end offering of being able to ingest data insights in real time to help trigger the creation of content in faster and more effective ways, and then distribute it even more effectively. And we're starting to create this flywheel of optimization and effectiveness. So it's really quite exciting to be a part of and quite exciting, maybe even more so to see how people are using the tools. I think an output of that is, you know, quite often the narrative when organizations are contemplating Gen AI is they default, and I get it, to efficiency and operational savings. 
And in many ways, that's great. But in other ways, it's almost a race to the bottom for bottom line growth efficiency. The true opportunity is what is an organization going to do with all of that free time for top line growth, for reinvention? And I think this is where those other technologies are starting to come into play. I think that AI is just kind of triggering this ability to create great efficiencies, but also prompt some reinvention going forward. Chris, I love hearing, you know, the passion in your voice as you talk through this. You've obviously like care about this a lot and, you know, you see how it can drive efficiencies and effectiveness. Are there any favorite case studies that you've seen, whether it's a brand, it's a creator, it's even something that you all have done internally that you're like, wow, this wouldn't have been possible without generative AI two years ago? Yeah. You know, in many ways, a lot of my examples are case studies of Adobe. So somewhat meta, but we use our tools to make our tools, to market our tools. And, you know, we've had to kind of reinvent a lot of our thinking and processes because of these new tools. To share a couple of those examples that kind of are very close to home are, we even had to rethink how we go to market with our products in terms of quite often when we were creating products or shipping products, we'd always multiple times throughout the creation process or design process really ask ourselves, have we taken out as much friction for the user to learn the product? And now with Gen AI, it's almost inversed where the question is, have we embedded enough learning intelligence into the product itself? that it will learn the user, which I think is a really interesting metaphor for how the industry is going to start to leverage these technologies going forward. A second one is as excited as we were about the technology, and Sam, you brought up that use case of the ability for a user to create different scenarios. We wanted to be very thoughtful in terms of predicting unintended consequences. And so we wanted to create some guardrails. And the first one was we train the system on Adobe stock, which means everything that's generated out of Firefly is 100% indemnified and it's commercial ready. We need to replay this one. Key thing for all my lawyers who listen, all my CMOs who are worried about this type of thing. Chris, I think that's such an important point to double down on. I think that, you know, that indemnification really changed the game for a lot of our partners, you know, in their willingness to explore and experiment and get hands on because that is a huge deal. Yeah, completely agree. I think that's one of the biggest considerations for organizational adoption. And then a second aspect is if Adobe is all about creativity, we really wanted to monetize the contributors. So we have a monetization model for the contributors that the model is training off of, which again, I think taps into the earlier point about how Web3 principles are starting to get infused across these other technologies. And then the last, but I think equally important is we created an industry-wide consortium comprised of about 2,000 companies across software, hardware, and media channels. And this adds a layer of transparency and traceability across content. And so now think of it almost as a nutritional label that is embedded into content. And so now you can see when and where the content was trained on, when and where it was augmented, when and where it was distributed, 
And we're getting to a point where the effectiveness and the usage of the content is embedded into the content as well. And again, that's kind of that convergence with Web3 technology coming together as well. So those are a couple use cases, you know, that we've been contemplating, working on leveraging Gen AI. You know, maybe a third kind of external use case that we're starting to see is, you know, I think academically and in the industry, we've been talking a lot about for years now, the ability to do personalization. And I think with Gen AI, we truly have now the capabilities. What we're now seeing is a hint towards the very near future of immersive AI. You know, everyone already has the ability to take a picture on their phone, turn it into a 3D model. Now imagine that everyone can take that 3D model, bring it into a generative solution and start to augment that 3D model for immersive experience, which is quite exciting. A little further out from that is micro-agents and individualization of LLMs, which is going to be quite exciting. Yesterday, we announced intent to acquire a company that will help create digital agents from that standpoint as well. Chris, I want to rewind on a couple of things you said, because I think they're important. The first thing that you brought up that to me I hadn't thought about, but I think it ties into a larger area I've been thinking about is this idea that we will, you know, all have these digital companions that, you know, we can have an ever long conversation that is always referential back to other parts of the conversation we've had. And, you know, for anyone who uses ChatGPT, you know, on their mobile device and the fact that you can just turn on your headphones and microphone and start having a conversation, you can see the power of that. Where what you said really triggered for me was this opportunity that you can also have an individual and unique experience with any of these applications. To use your words, it can learn you as much as you are learning it, which I think is also such an amazing way of thinking about Gen AI from a tooling perspective and the idea that you don't have to remember these nine key codes to turn this thing into that thing like you might have had to do at Photoshop and Illustrator, you know, that you could have a conversation. You can say, hey, remember that thing I did a year ago? Let's do that again. And it'll know if you will. And I think that's really interesting. I would also love to, you know, I don't know if you're comfortable pulling back the curtain, but, you know, the conversations internally about let's make sure that everything that we output is usable by brands and creators without impact legally. I can only echo what Avery was saying. It's so transformative for people who do want to play in the space because they've been worried so much with the chat GPTs and the Anthropics and the mid journeys just about whether they're being trained on, it sounds like you guys early on just said, let's make sure to train it on all things we own. And therefore we can really give that license. So what was that conversation like as far as you were involved? When we're talking about the past, we're talking about just a few months ago. So this is all very much in real time. A sub point to maybe jump ahead is we also had to make the call, could the system train off of generative AI? And we made the decision not to, because then that kind of clouds a cleaner lineage of attribution where it came from. And so, yeah, I think the question and answer was quite clear in terms of if we are going to create a generative AI solution, how can we make sure that we're celebrating provenance and protecting IP and so on? And so we had that repository of images, videos, and 3D that you know, luckily we could really kind of create that sandbox for commercial grade opportunities, which is 
you know, I think really uh, great for us and great for our end users. We also do want to provide the ability for end users to even customize it a step further. So we're now offering the ability for customers to, yes, use our system, but to augment it and enhance it with their own training data. And so that allows for greater customization from an end user standpoint as well. So that'll be kind of the next phase that we're focused on. And that inherently gets very technically complex in terms of, yeah, how do you ping you know, the clouds and the infrastructure and the latency? We're down to you know, every generation is well under 15 seconds. And so how can enterprises tap into an infrastructure that allows for that as well? Yeah, I think that that's a really interesting opportunity because ultimately, you know, we show this type of thing to partners all the time and they're like, yeah, this is great. But like, if I'm bank A, can't bank B get the same thing by doing their prompts and they want their brand tonality, their lookbook, the look and feel that they refined over decades or centuries to be reflected and trained into a new model. So it's amazing that Adobe is building those capabilities and same for an artist, right? Like they might have their own signature style that they want to bring into this new medium. So I think that that'll be really interesting. Any sense of when that will be rolling out to the general public or is that under wraps? We're working on some in-motion pilots currently, so that should be uh, very soon. Avery, you brought up a couple other scenarios that you bring to mind that we did have to make some calls on where is the border in terms of if there is an artist style that you can reference. And so there are some safeguards and parameters in terms of not being able to reference a well-known artist as well. The second, I think, more broadly, that the industry is realizing is, in many ways, it's a new skill too, the art of the prompt. Quite often, when we first released some of the betas, we were getting feedback, the outputs were not as they had hoped. And what we found was it wasn't actually the system, it was the artfulness or the craft of the prompts. And so I think, you know, that's where, again, Sam, to your earlier point on this higher level critical thinking, creative ability will never go away. It's just going to evolve. And so one of the evolutions will be the art of the prompt to get the output that you want. Yeah, you've got to refine it. Prompt engineering is a big, big thing. Now let's sort of pivot the conversation a little bit and jump into metaverse and immersive What are people getting wrong in how they were thinking about the metaverse and sort of this new immersive reality? You know, to our earlier point, if we were talking this time last year, I'm sure this conversation would have started with the metaverse and maybe it would have taken up the entirety of the conversation. It's been interesting to see a very similar arc or hype cycle with the metaverse and AI. And so for better or worse, we tend to overhype the beginnings and then... We tend to overpromise and then underdeliver as emerging technologists. Yeah. Yeah. And so I recently had the opportunity to judge the CES category for the metaverse. I have to say with 100% conviction, it is coming fast and the outputs and use cases are really quite exciting. I do get a sense the more immediate use cases for the metaverse will be the industrial metaverse, everything from manufacturing, healthcare, and scenarios like that. And so I think that that will be probably a tipping point for the metaverse. But Avery, to 
be more specific to your question, think what people tend to get wrong about the metaverse or not people so much, maybe the media or the headline trying to distill it down is quite often I hear, do we really need another technology to lock us into more screen time? And I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the technology, but also the intent of the technology to really kind of simplify the definition of the metaverse. It's really the convergence of the digital and the physical world coming together. And the hope is it will take us off of and out of staring at a screen to really converge those two together. So there's multiple use cases, obviously. People still tend to think of metaverse as VR gaming, and that's one use case, but there's multiple avenues and on-ramps into the metaverse, and we're still very much just in the beginning innings of you know this more immersive AI. But Chris, I think that your point, which I just want to put a sharper edge on, is that one, you know, a year ago we were talking about the metaverse a little bit too much, but what we weren't talking about was all of the places that we are engaging with 3D content, with virtual or mixed or augmented worlds. And those are just happening more and more and more. And anyone who's under 25 spends a lot of time in those worlds every day, right? So you mentioned earlier the ability even just to take your phone out, scan an object and be able to do something with that, which a lot of people still don't even know they can do. But the fact is, whether it's one of your tools or a lot of the other places, and then you combine a game engine with it, and suddenly you start to see that whether it's understanding whether there is a apartment available in a building you're seeing across the street, or you want to see if furniture is going to fit in your apartment or whether glasses look good on your face, all of that is part of the same conversation. And I think the tool set of sort of big GPU engines that can drive the contextual information around the experiences that we live every day is like such a big unlock, this concept of digital twinning and the contextual layers that need creative tools, they need big thinkers, they need obviously big data and AI to make all of this happen. But I guess I feel like that people underestimate, one, just the power of gaming through the lens of game engines. Game engines can do so much that they are seen and relegated to things we play on our phone and things we play on our TV but they're not, I would say, like they're not thinking through that next layer of the physical world around us is the biggest canvas that exists. Yeah. You know, coming into this call, that's what prompted the memory, Avery, of the pitch. I won't say the customer, but that was about 10 years ago. And that was an immersive healthcare use case for patients to go in and have an immersive experience. And so- What's old is new. Yeah, right. Has been around. We just didn't have the technology or the infrastructure to enable it. So I think um, it's going to be quite exciting to see, you know, how the industry and customers are going to really start to embrace this more fully going forward. I do want to acknowledge, I think we're still somewhat missing that iPhone moment in terms of the hardware, which is still kind of a, a speed bump for broader adoption in the industrial metaverse. I think we've got some great form factors from a consumer standpoint. I think we're getting pretty close, but we haven't had that iPhone moment yet for the metaverse, unfortunately. There's always the humane AI pin. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Maybe that's it. Maybe it's right in front. Yeah. It could be coming next. So I'd also be curious as we sort of talk about this blender of all different emerging technologies from 10 years ago with virtual assistants, which by the way, are also coming back to 
you know, what we've seen in the world of metaverse, we've seen in also the conversation in AI, like if you even look at Google trends, like got really hot, cooled off, even like usage was down for a couple months this summer, it's actually back up, which is interesting to see across a few of the big platforms this week, there was tons of chatter around uh, open AI where Sam Altman is, of course, back as a founder. But you know, sort of wrapped up in this, I'd love to understand your opinion of Web3 so far, and how you see it interacting with these technologies. Is Web3 the sort of wrapper that includes all of them? Is Web3 a specific part of this next era of the internet? How do you think about how it interplays with some of the things we've talked about in this call? I think that's one of the great contemplations happening right now. Even 24 months ago, maybe 36 months ago, quite often the metaverse immersive AI and Web3 were getting conflated. And there were, you know, one school of thought that they were one in the same, you know, different principles, but they were very interlinked. There was another school that they are distinctly different, but complementary. And that's kind of where I really am a big advocate believer in. I think Web3, again, is a natural evolution of the web, right? We had Web1, which was really kind of this uh, read-only environment with this belief promise of really helping democratize the access of information. We then went into Web2, which was a primarily read-write scenario where it was bi-directional. We then went into uh, Web3.0, which is distinctly different. Again, I don't know why we do this to ourselves, but it is distinctly different than Web3. So Web3 is the semantic web, which was founded on this belief of creating language that the computer could understand the information. We kind of leapfrogged semantic web with LLMs. And so now we're at Web3, which is really founded on this belief of co-ownership, co-creation, It's not about monetizing people's time or attention. It's really about rewarding their time and attention. And, you know, big credit to both of you, because I think you both helped advance the industry and the adoption, right? Like I remember early in the pandemic when vFriends was getting announced, and I think that just propelled everyone to figure out, oh, this is how I get a digital wallet. Like, I think that can be directly attributed to capturing the excitement and tapping into culture. (laughs) Thank you. And so as much as I love technology, we can't underestimate the ability to bridge technology to culture and emotion. And I think those two have to go hand in hand. So I think uh, Web3, to your point, Avery, I think it's still probably TBD. And I debate this internally and we debate this, you know, across the industry. Is AI kind of the big sphere and metaverse and Web3 are kind of subpoints to that, or is Web3 kind of the big? I don't know if that's fully formed yet. It's probably still TBD. What I do know for certain is they're all inevitable. They're all kind of getting developed very quickly and they're converging. And I think we'll just amplify each other going forward. Hey, Chris, before we let you go, my final question for you is you are someone who kind of has this somewhat amazing job. If people think about the idea that you get to play in an unbelievably creative sandbox with some of the biggest companies and biggest creators in the world using your tools and coming to you guys for kind of collaboration. What do you look at that inspires you? How do you get inspired for what's going to come next? Where are the places you're reading? You know, is it coming from science fiction? Is it coming out of science? Like, where do you get your spark to keep doing what you're doing? Maybe I think the consistency 
is a uh, creation. You know, I get, and however you want to define that, is it design? Is it creativity? Is it product design and so on? But I think the underlying common thread throughout, you know, my career is this ability to create in many ways something new or help build something new. I find that quite energizing and exciting. I think that the caveat and we're seeing it even more evident is how do organizations become more agile? How do they create organizational mindset and infrastructure to change and create change? And so I think that's going to be one of the biggest considerations over the next 12 months is, okay, we get the technology, we understand the business need. How do we create almost a manufacturing process to ingest, adopt, and leverage these technologies going forward. So I think that's a big consideration and probably the competitive advantage for organizations going forward and individuals, I would say, the ability to adapt quickly will be a competitive advantage going forward. Innovate or die, says Chris Duffy, and that is a perfect (laughs) way to end this show. Um, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to join us, especially the day before Thanksgiving. We are so grateful for you sharing your insights, sharing your knowledge, sharing your decades of experience in marketing and emerging tech. And sounds like we'll have to get a drink sometime and swap some old pitch stories and hear uh, if we ever got to bring that virtual program to life together. Sounds good. Thanks again. Thanks, Chris. Avery, thank you for helping to set up that conversation with Chris. I was really excited to talk to him, especially with all the stuff that Adobe has been doing in the AI space. I was actually really chuffed. Yes, I said chuffed and I'm not British. I was very excited to uh, hear also how bullish he is on like the general sense of metaverse gaming, Web3, blockchain, like he seems to sort of touch all those buttons. So I was really happy to hear that they're thinking about that from a corporate level at Adobe. What were your thoughts? We adore Adobe. We do a lot of fun stuff with them as partners and you know, both also like using their tools, like every single person in our ecosystem is proficient at the Adobe suite. So I've been really impressed with how Adobe has leaned into generative AI through generative fill and through Firefly and a number of their other sort of to be announced features. Some folks from my team just went to their like big demo day and got a lot out of it. We were able to bring some partners there as well. So I am all in on Adobe leaning into AI. And I also, what I love about it is it's super usable and it's also super enterprise ready. I think we're balancing the upstarts right now with the established players. And, you know, it's awesome to see some of these big tech companies really moving with speed towards this opportunity. And, you know, Chris espoused a lot of the values that Adobe brings and thinks through in the space. And he's obviously very well educated across a number of different topics. So it's just fun to work with him. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, I know it is the day before Thanksgiving. We're both eager to jump to it. So I'm going to let you go. And audience, have a great holiday. This will come out on Monday, but we're just preemptively getting there. And we hope you guys uh, have had a great time. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Take care, Gen C. See you all next week. Bye.